Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Dobry večer and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Doe. Hello and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow from the History of Germany podcast. This is it, folks. This is the show that I'm extremely glad that you tuned into because this is going to set the table for what the Bohemian podcast is, at least on historical note, Travis. This is the time that we're going to be talking about Greater Moravia. So besides the legends that talk about Father Czech, ask any Czech or Slovak where their history really starts, and they'll probably point towards this Greater Moravia beginnings. Greater Moravia, or Great Moravia, was a Slavic state that only existed for 70 years, but it encompassed just a little bit of Germany, Saxony, where today Dresden is located. But I want you to think about this as a whole. It's the Czech Republic and Slovakia is a good part of that. A little bit of Poland, Slovenia, Ukraine, a sliver of Romania, Serbia, and Croatia, and all of Hungary. That was it. That's the biggest empire, quote-unquote, that the Czechs and Slovaks ever had, period. It's roughly the size of the state of Oregon, to give you an idea. So because it was the biggest, the first nation that the Czechs and Slovaks could hearken back to the time when they actually had a state of their own. And since that time, a millennia has gone by, where they were run by one power or another, with only brief periods of independence, or none in the Slovakia's case, until after World War I. And I wouldn't actually call it an empire, but all but two of the years they paid tribute to the Franks, and a vassal, a small detail, sometimes left out of the history books. Yeah, it's been romanticized, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if we want to look back at a specific date, let's go back to 855 and 874. That's when they were truly independent. You know, that, and that's funny. Um, I, well, it's not funny, but yeah, that's, those are the two dates when they kind of rebelled against the Franks. And so even in there, we're talking about 70 years but that was the straw, the only straw that the Slovaks could grasp onto um, under the Hungarians. And it was sometimes a straw romanticized in the 19th century by the Czechs under the Austrians. And um, I mean, that's 70 years. And of those 70 years, 855 and 874 are two years where they kicked the Franks out and didn't pay tribute and were really fully independent. That's that's the dream. Like, that's what they were remembering, and that's what finally got them their independence in World War One. Like, that stubbornness of, like, no, we've done it before, and uh, we are a separate culture, and, and, you know, look at Greater Moravia, you know, and they dealt with the Franks and so forth. Um, but, yeah, it's... 
it's not a it's not a big time period. It's not a um uh, important thing in the grand scheme of events. But... Well, you would have to you would have to think that the Czechs and Slovaks do have a long memory. However, sometimes mixed in that memory is a little bit of truth and a little bit of of uh, cherry picking ideas right. that kind of help out with legends and uh, try to give a mythos to a sense of nationalism but uh, would, and culture. I would say so. Uh, my personal experience in Prague, I thought it was really interesting that um, this is the combined. Um, origin myth, the combined kind of ancestry of the Czechs and Slovaks. Um, and I met Slovaks that were from the far eastern part of Slovakia and said, yes, greater, like, look at Greater Moravia. The capital um, was technically in today's Slovakia, let's say, because, you know, Moravia also kind of carried over into the Slovakian side at some point. Then they said, yeah, so the one of the capitals, it might be in Moravia in today's Czech Republic, but also archaeology, you know, uh, indicates that the Slovakian side was just as important, if not um, the dynasty even coming from the Slovakian side. So therefore, it's also their ancestry. And the Slovaks are just as as proud of this. And so now... Yeah, there's, there's a common thread here. Is be, it, you know, well, because yeah. of that idea, I want to point out that the communists were not ignorant of this. And so the communists that made um, great attention, uh, we've mentioned before on the show that if you were a Slovak soldier, you often served in the Czech Republic and vice versa because they wanted to mix the two. It was kind of like Canada where they had two languages. You always heard the news in Slovak and Czech. And, um, you know, even though Slovak spoke Slovaks and Czech spoke Czech, um, they, they just tried their best to be dual in the, in that way. And so the communists liked the story of Greater Moravia. They said, look, guys, we all, you know, we all come from the same people. We're not even talking two languages. We're talking two dialects. You know, come on. It's not that bad. And, and everybody had to learn both in school and so forth. Um, so this was that unity that they could point to, which did not exist for a thousand years. You know, after that came the kingdom of Bohemia and Slovakia was swallowed up by Poles and Hungarians, you know, until the 20th century. So and, sh- and sure, when you talk about certain capital areas, at least when you're talking about just west of Slovakia, you're looking at Olomutz, in the town of Olomutz, which was a, a, a bishop seat uh, at one point, of course. And then you would also look to maybe a modern day seat area, which would be um, Bruno, you know, as, as maybe the capital of Moravia. Some will say that today in the 20th and 21st centuries. But a lot of this, Travis, kind of goes around where most cities had to kind of really get their their trade or their their drinking water was to be around some sort of ro- river. Mm-hmm. And the core of Greater Moravia was around the Morava River in modern-day Moravia, Bohemia, and part of Slovakia. Now, however, not everybody agrees on this, but something that the core was south of the Danube, but Greater Moravia encompassed both areas. This was kind of a, a, a pretty big spot in the middle of Europe that we talk yeah. about this this empire. And this core was where the ancestors of the Moravian Slovaks are basically, and, and the, of course, and basically the Czechs come from. So this is a pretty big uh, situation we want to talk about for the Bohemian podcast because we're talking about roots tonight. We're talking about the roots that that make the Czechs the Czechs, the Bohemians the Bohemians, Moravians the Moravians, the Slovaks the Slovaks. And uh, I think it's a show that we've we really have to do. Yeah. Um, now, if you've ever played Crusader States two. 
Is that what the game's called? You know what I'm, I showed it to you once, right? Or you've played yeah, it. Yeah, you, bas- you, you basically almost blew up your laptop because it just took a lot yeah, of space. My, my new laptop <laughs> ha- can deal with it. And I, since I got my new laptop, I'm like, I don't have any time because my new laptop can also deal with uh, with video editing. So, yeah, uh, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of done playing video games. But uh, what I was yeah, going to say s- was <laughs> Principality of Nitra. And the Principality of Moravia are there, and you can play as the Duke, and you actually play as the Svatopluk, uh, no, the uh, Premisal Dynasty, I believe, like Autocar. But, so, this, if you've played that game, you can go back and, I don't think you can go all the way back to the 9th century. I think the furthest back is, like, before Hastings, maybe. No, I think there's a Viking expansion. So, go to 833... And there is Moimir the first, M-O-J-M-I-R. Maybe it's a different spelling. and Yeah, but Moimir. Um, And he basically first united the Principality of Nitra and the Principality of Moravia. Uh, By force, he just, you know, combined the two. And that is kind of what started this. Then, Then his dynasty took over and kept expanding. And it, it, it reached its greatest extent, I would say, just a couple generations later under the very famous, like also by, uh, so Slovaks consider Svatopluk the first is Svatopluk the great. I even once painted a Slovak as <laughs> Svatopluk the first. Um, and he reigned from 871 to 894. So a couple generations is really where we see the, the the zenith, the greatest extent of the borders. And this all comes from that that dynasty, um, which was started by Moimir I. And you can play that all on <laughs> Crusader. They don't pay me to say that, I swear. But oh, No, man, but, but here's the thing. Like, this you is what I to say like, when you brought that up. I saw Nitra because... and I was like, oh yeah, I remember. I've created an empire I, from I, Nitra once. I remember yeah. it too, because what, oh, what happened man. was you locked yourself in the house in your apartment for about like 16 days oh, and I, I don't like, and you just played you just played the whole thing like travis I, I where were you, you i was i know <laughs> intrigue man i was murdering i was murdering nephews of the pre- you know i was consolidating power leave me alone well, well i think at one time taking over Pilsen. you brought the Pilsen dynasty into some kind of uh uh heyday that they were ruling all of europe at one point so oh, uh, oh absolutely uh, oh yeah. yeah so but you know it, it, it is interesting we talk about you know the days gone by when when you, you saw the flexing of the muscles and it maybe on a tribal level, we're not talking an empire at this point. We're talking just kind of a, a glorified tribal level of, 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 of intrigue and, and um, you know, trying to set up your empire, just like the game you talked about, Travis, but this was real life. This is how you did it. You had to make the, your, your, uh, some of your enemies, your friends, you had to marry off daughters to this. You had to start playing the game besides just going in with a, with a sword and a shield and, and conquering. And I, I think you're starting to see that here in the greater Moravia, but all that being said, Trav, really the two guys that come into this we talk aren't aren't kings and potentates. They're not um, you know warriors of any sort of caste that made this happen. They were two men of God, and they they brought what is today Greater Moravia to a whole new level, and that's Cyril and Methodius. Now, obviously, Cyril and Methodius could fill whole podcasts of themselves, and um, they they have been mentioned in many, many episodes. There are many, many episodes on them out there. And so we are going to give you specifically the Czech and Slovak spin on this, the um, their importance to Czech Slovak history, um, which is different because, as you will note, 
Russia, Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, everywhere else, Cyril and Methodius's influence was felt, and everywhere else where they also brought language and alphabet and so forth, today is Orthodox areas. So they are that way because they're influenced by the Byzantine Empire, whereas the West, the Latin West, was influenced by the Roman Empire. And the Bible was in Latin, and in the East, the Bible was in Greek, and then Cyril and Methodius translated it to, um, uh, first to Bulgarian, and then it was made its way from there to Romanian. Romanian isn't even a Slavic language, but Cyril and Methodius's Slavic alphabet uh, made its way through, and it's made its way into the Romanian liturgy of, um, uh, even to this day, basically. Well, yeah, like, and, let me let me let me bring this up. This this is an extremely important point to get an idea about how influential these men were at a time when you just don't go and tell the Pope what you want to do. And you, you are talking about a schism. You, you do have uh, the Holy Roman Empire on one side, and then you do have uh, you know, the, the Byzantine Empire as well. But, but they did go to the Pope, and, and yes. they yes. had the audacity to say, we need another language the Bible could be taught in. And the, it was written down as or part of oral history. I can't remember either which, but uh, that was said that you don't come and tell the Pope that we're going to make it. Uh, we're going to allow another language for the Bible read because it's only in Latin, Greek, or or Aramaic. I believe at the time or Coptic. Cop- yeah, like so well, that's, that's the it. thing. So in the East, they already <laughs> have this tradition, anyways, because the Bible started out being an Aramaic. You know, it was Aramaic and then written down in Greek first, which means those languages already existed. The Copts, the, you know, Syriac, they also had their, um, which is the closest thing to what Jesus actually spoke. That already existed. The Greek one was the first version that we basically got um, in the, you know, Hellenized East versus the Latinized West. So, yeah, there was already, so now, you know, Syrian Coptic are coming from the East saying, yeah, now we need a Slavic one. It's just one more. And of course, yeah, the, the Pope is like, wait a, a minute. That's, yeah, a that's not, back. that's not Latin. Um yeah, the, the Pope would probably, I mean, that's, you know, would he rather have the Greek and Aramaic ones burned? It's it's an interesting, like, they really stuck to the Latin, um, which is interesting. But Well, and, and not to get too centric, so we have a lot to go into right. this. But yeah. I, I, yeah. I think this is important to mention this, though, too. As it is today's biggest questions when you talk about schisms in the church, uh, and you talk about what language means in the church, especially when you talk about the Gospels, the, the canonical Gospels, or whether you're talking about the New Testament uh, uh, in, in that sense or the Old Testament. You, you know, you have pushback when people say the King James Version versus the, the, the other Catholic uh, approved versions, those type of things, especially after post, uh, Vatican II, you know, about making all these type of things to um, what is the real meaning? Because as you said, Travis, you had they had to translate it from Aramaic to Greek, and then from Greek to Latin, and there aren't some similarities in some of those uh, terminologies that could really make or break a parable or a story. And so, you, even today, there's pushback saying, "Well, that's not really the Gospels that you're reading because you're reading it in this language or this this translation." If you thought it was bad today, <laughs> you know, with all the schisms that we have in the Protestant churches and the Catholic Church and in all the other churches that, that are around. Imagine what it was like in the earliest days, mm-hmm. in the in the in the late uh, uh, seven hundred, late eight hundreds. Uh, this was a big pushback, and these guys 
really had to oh. to have some gravitas to go in and demand this to add, to bring people into their fold. Yeah, in fact, into the Christian family. One more interesting point is um, because Greater Moravia is, goes all the way down to Slovenia and and further, and um, Cyril and Methodius came to that area. It, like Prague specifically in 863. Um, so in the time of Greater Moravia, that's what they encountered. And that's an interesting point because I mentioned on the history of Germany that Wolfilas, I, I talked about it with Stephen Guerra from the History of the Papacy podcast, but then also later, um, the Crimean Goths had a Gothic, uh, so a Germanic um, Bible translated um by Wolfilas, or, you know, he had help, but it was translated to a Germanic language, Gothic kind of specifically. And that survived through the Middle Ages, even in the Crimea, for instance. So when Cyril Methodius came around, they were really just saying, now, you know, look, I mean, we have tons of precedents, um, but this is, you know, now we just need the next people that are there are the Slavs. So we got to take it to them. Um but the Pope had different views because even uh, Wolfilas, he, he was Arian. A lot of the Goths were Arian. So they weren't – a Pope, especially in later years, became less and less fans of this. Uh, Arian, I mean Arian Christian, followers of Arius, not Arian the other. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so yeah, like the Popes actually did not like this precedence of translating Bibles into Gothic and that, and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so Cyril and Methodius – Long story short, spoiler, they did it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. actually, Travis, they were initiated by Prince Radoslav, and he was introduced to a system of, of writing, and this, the writing itself was called Glagolitic Alphabet and Slavonic Liturgy. Yes, because what we call, it gets confusing in Slavic languages itself, what we call Cyrillic today, they don't. They would call it they would call the old language that Cyril and Methodius actually created Cyrillic and what they call today I think we get into this later but so I don't want to um, jump ahead too much but just to define glagolitic um that is the oldest known Slavic alphabet that's the one that Cyril and Methodius actually made with uh Rastis Rastislav uh I believe is what his, what his name is um as their patron basically so um, yeah, just to cl clarify, like when you're talking to someone that speaks Russian or Czech or Polish or whatever, and you say Cyrillic, they're like, we don't write Cyrillic. Um, you know, that's Middle Ages. I can't even read Cyrillic. No one, I mean, only academics can, basically, um, because that's what they mean. They mean glagolitic, and they, and they have a different word for that. You know, they call that Cyrillic and, and so forth. And there are many iterations between old Cyrillic and modern Russian and Bulgarian, which has some differences and Ukrainian might have some differences. Um, so just to clarify, it's, it's, yeah, we're talking way back. We're talking the ninth century. So this is like the first, yeah. Uh, version 1.0 beta was called Gagliolitic, Gagliolitic. All right, cool. Yeah. It's it. So again, even that has an influence that is um, based on Greek. If you know the Greek alphabet, you actually have a lot easier time learning even modern Russian. There, there's some, there's enough similarities that it helps. Let's let's put it that way. Um, but Cyrillic and Methodius did invent a couple of letters to meet what they were hearing in Slavonic and in Slavic languages better. Um, but yeah, there's still a, there's definitely a Greek base. Um, so yeah, there's you know it's not totally wild and out there. 
there's some letters in common with Latin, some letters in common with Greek, and you know, you'd you'd recognize it when you see it. Think James Bond movies. Right. <laughs> Does that help? <laughs> Not really, but C C C C C P really right. is S S S R, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I if you're talking about these guys going into going in and trying to win people over and convert them from uh, pagan backgrounds to a, a Christian uh, lifestyle. You, you set up yourself uh, an alphabet. You teach people how to read. Then you can teach them how to uh, follow along when you're, when you're talking about the Gospels and really kind of in, in, invest themselves, buy into it all. But the liturgy has to be part of it, has to be structured around this new sort of introduction. And the liturgy was, was eventually uh, informally approved by Pope Adrian II, one interesting note on the liturgy is, is that it's is also Romanian. Yeah, and and okay, yeah, and by the time Pope Adrian II approved it, there's an interesting little footnote here, and that is that Romania also used a Orthodox, let's call it that, you know, a Russian, Romanian, um, <clears throat> Bulgarian Orthodox um, liturgy. And their liturgical language. So the words that the priest would actually use in their mass, in their ceremonies, would be Slavic. Not Latin, obviously, but also not necessarily Greek. Maybe, you know, Greek influence here or there. Uh, Definitely, Cyril and Methodius had to invent some Slavic words. Um, So, yeah, there is a Greek influence um, for sure. uh, More than a Latin one. Um, But they had to... Um, invent some new words, and these words were then Slavic, and those words were also practiced in Romania, and Romania is not a Slavic-speaking country, so that's the that's the footnote here. Romania is a Latin Latin language uh, speaking country. It's a Romance rom- Romance language like French, Latin, Italian, Spanish, uh, not Slavic. Okay. And so the fact that they, they, you know, they converted to Orthodox, they became, they kind of followed this same liturgy as the Bulgarians and then the Ukrainians and Russians. Um, this also, this, mean that, this meant that, first of all, um, there were Slavic words in Romania now through their liturgy. And this was also kind of, by now, it was just, you know, here's a Romance language doing this. It's really mainstream. And Pope Adrian finally said, yeah, there's no point in, yeah, okay, let's accept this because um, we're never going to reconvert them to Catholicism now, you know, and make them all learn Latin. They're already Christians practicing in their own language. Let's call it good. So, you know, Pope Adrian II then formally approved it, basically. That's, yeah, and I, I would argue he, that was, he didn't have much of a choice. That was, yeah, he just kind of had to, but yeah, sure. And, and so, so this and so this becomes the works that people will start to be able to use in churches as far as the the uh, uh, the priests would be able to use and the language they would use to the the farmers, the 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 workers, the the people that are doing the, all the living and dying pretty much in these uh, areas that we had mentioned, um, they would be getting this information now. We haven't got to that point yet where we would fast forward to the days of, of, of giving everyone a chance to be literate enough to be able to read for themselves. We're not there yet. That's centuries, centuries away. At this point, you're still getting your instruction from those that uh, have, a, have a, uh, an ear to God, which would be the, the priests. And uh, But yet we really want to make this point very clear that this is really where the literary history, uh, literary history of the Slavs begin. And right. on July 5th, yeah. yeah, and July fifth, eight sixty three, in their honor, this day has become the feast day 
of the Czech Republic and Slovakia, something they share in common even after the great divorce of 1990. And even despite them being both Catholic countries now, I should add. Um, so yeah, just the fact that this is their literary beginning, this is, yeah, even once they did eventually convert to Catholicism, Hungarians, um, Slav- uh, Slovaks, Poles, and Czechs eventually converted to Catholicism, as did some other Slavs like further south. Uh, but yeah, like Romanians, Bulgarians, and Ukrainians, Russians stayed Orthodox and also stayed, kept using the um, Cyrillic alphabet. Romanians do not use the Cyrillic alphabet, but still have Slav. Are you? Are you? Is everyone fully confused now? Um, yeah. <laughs> so Romanians is not Slavic. Does not use the Cyrillic alphabet. Right. Um, Czech and Slovak does not use the Cyrillic alphabet and is Catholic. Romanian does not use the Cyrillic alphabet but is Orthodox, but has some Slavic words in their liturgy. Um, Poland is Catholic, very Catholic, and does not use the Cyrillic alphabet. And Ukraine and Russia do and are also Orthodox. In case you were wondering, in case that like wasn't clear before now, like where that now, breaks that down. Now, if that spider web is something that's a little confusing for you, that, so, then, then this this might help that they all have this in common. They all have a, they put Cyril Methodius on a pedestal yes. because they recognize them as the ones that brought the word of God to them and their, and to get rid of their pagan background, so to speak, but yet also unify them as a people, as a Slavic people. And I think that that's something that's going to be very, very interesting to, to see because you know, as as we kind of look back on this time, you start thinking about these countries that you mentioned. You rattled off those: you have Poland, Romania, and Czech Republic, and Slovakia. Um, you know, they're all celebrating the 1,150 years uh, since the arrival of Cyril Methodius. And if you think that that is, you know, something that is not in the textbooks, of course it is. It's mentioned in almost uh, all, all all last year in 2015, where it was at point. Uh, in most Catholic churches, you would see the this this the year of Cyril Methodius, um, you know, either posters or you know some type of activity that would go beyond some mass. And uh, it was really really interesting to see that that uh, that you would there was so much still importance put on these two these two men. And uh, if you here in, in Prague in, in the Czech Republic, there are several churches. I want to say three maybe in Prague that are named after Cyril Methodius, one we in Carleen, one downtown. One. Yeah. Um, uh, and the, and you, uh, you know, one is very important as far as, you know, uh, Czech Republic history uh, during world war two. Um, but uh, it, you know, these names are, you know, etched wow. in stone, literally. Hold on. Give that one a good plug. Uh, Cause yeah, that one, the Cyril Methodius church in Prague was the scene of a shootout. True. Uh, th- th- this was the final scene for um, Operation Anthropoid that that was yeah. the um, the assassination attempt that worked out for for uh, the these assassins on uh, on uh, Reinhard Heydrich uh, that killed him in Prague Eight, one of the districts there, and they were able to yeah. uh, escape days before they were cornered in the church of, of uh, Cyril Methodius downtown on uh, Jitna, I believe Jitna Street. Um, heading towards the river, Travis, and um, you know it's still a, a place of, of great honor because these are two Czech patriots during World War II that 
killed pretty much the most evil man, yeah. most evilest man don't, in all of the we third don't, we don't We don't need to go into it too much because we did a whole episode on that. That's my point. Like, if you want to hear more, go listen to that episode. Sure. But, but yeah, yeah. That was uh, the this place. Has, it was this, this, has to, church. this has nothing to do with Cyril and Methodius themselves. But yeah, right. like the, even the church is, uh, there's there's a bunch of history around there. Um, let me do one thing real quick, which is, again, so Cyril and Methodius have been dealt with on a bunch, a bunch of different shows. Um, they're just well-known characters, but just in case you don't feel like going to listen to anywhere else, let me give you a quick two-minute rundown of where, who were Cyril and Methodius and, and, you know, where did they come from? What did they, what did they do but other than Christianize, like, a whole people? Um, basically, um, you know, uh, the, <laughs> the biggest landmass on Earth was Christianized by Cyril and Methodius. Um, not directly, but eventually. Um, so... They were two brothers, first of all. They were born in Thessalonica, which is in, in modern-day Greece, and, um, you know, kind of northern Greece. Cyril was born in 827 or 828, somewhere in there, and Methodius somewhere in 815 to 820. And Cyril was reputedly the youngest of seven brothers. He was born uh, Constantine, but took the name Cyril upon becoming a monk in Rome shortly before his death. So most of his life, uh, his contemporaries would have known him as Constantine, not Cyril at all. Cyril was a post-death uh, kind of name, really, that, you know, that he went down in history as. Uh, Methodius was born Michael and took the name Methodius upon becoming a monk at Mysian Olympus, uh, present-day Uludyag in northwestern uh, Turkey. Sorry if I butchered that, guys. So their father was Leo, um, who was someone of, of some importance in the Byzantine Empire in Thessalonica, uh, like within the, Be the Byzantine Empire itself. Um, and their mother was Maria, who may have been a Slav. Some historians speculate that just like Wolfilas, he was like half Greek, half Byzantine, and half Slav, uh, half German, half Gothic. Um, so some historians speculate that they may have actually had a, a learned Slavic, a Slavic language as a child. And that's and that's what kind of I mean, that's what enabled them to translate the Bible then and create an alphabet for what their mother was speaking. They could write Greek. And so simply, you know, I mean, it's just pretty natural if they, if they were half and half. But I wouldn't stake my reputation on that. That's that's not known for sure. Um, in any case, the two brothers lost their father when Cyril was only 14 and the powerful minister Theokistos was, he was one of the chief ministers of the empire at the time. He basically stepped in and became their protector, their mentor, and took care of the boys. Um, and he was also responsible, along with the regent Bardas, for initi initiating this far-reaching educational program within the empire, which culminated in this establishment of the, well, first of all, the University of Magnaura, um, where Cyril was to teach, but then eventually also the much wider reaching consequence of this missionary, um, you know, outside the empire, trying to, the Byzantines, as I've noted on the history of Germany, um, the Byzantines had a strategy of not fighting their neighbors because they would just be uh, replaced by other neighbors, but also like the Western Romans before them, uh, towards the end, they wanted to placate and pacify their neighbors, and um, one way to do that was to Christianize them. 
So missionaries were sent out in all directions, east and west. Uh, both Byzantines and Western Rome did this until their collapse. The Franks took over right away and started sending out Catholic missionaries um, from Rome. And and yeah, so this was this was a thing in the east. This is what started it. Is is my point? Cyril and Methodius were were kind of the culmination of this re-education strategy within the Byzantine Empire, and so. Um, they kind of cut their teeth, I would say, in the Middle East. I don't know how much detail you want to talk about, you know, this uh, on your show, Pete. But um, they they basically they did go to a caliphate. They um, were missionaries over there. They argued with Arab theologians, and like I said, cut their teeth. They gained some experience. I guess is the point I want to make. They. Um, you know, looked at Islam and even Judaism as a monotheistic religion, and they kind of honed their own theology, I would say. And this this really prepared them for, for later missions. That's that's the only point I would make there. Um, they, they, they were, Travis, they, they were preparing themselves in bits and pieces, but that, that trip itself to the Middle East, I think, honed their skills to be able to go into the wilderness, so to speak, and to all these different peoples, and then say... Okay, here's how here's how we're going to approach this. Because you know, listen, these guys are going into areas that haven't been really touched yet um, by uh, the Christian faith. So these are our pagan folks. We're you know celebrating thousands of years of, of pagan tradition, and you're going in there, and you're going to say, hey, you know what? We're not worshiping trees anymore. All right, you're done with yeah. that. No more worshiping rocks. And some of these mis- missionaries did that wonderfully. Some of them went in and said. Hey, you know what? We're going to say this this tree represents the tree of Christ, and we want to celebrate that life. And it kind of merged these things together. Others went in with literal axes and cut down those trees or destroyed those those holy rocks or you know those type of things. And that resulted in a lot of pushback, decapitations for, for a few reasons, uh, things that I would that I remember reading and some of the early missionaries. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, if you guys, if you guys, but want not to for Cyril Methodius. If you guys want to yeah. hear more about all that stuff, history of Germany, we got Boniface, we got we covered all those Wolfilas. Um, there's shows, there's like several shows on the Christianization of Germanic tribes throughout the centuries. Um, then later, like the Franks converting the Saxons. So yeah, we don't need to get into any of that stuff. Um, just go listen to the history of Germany. Um, but but one thing I want to mention for Cyril Methodius. Which is like I I can't believe I actually get to mention the Khazar, um, the Kagan, the Kaganate of the the um, Khazar. It's a Kaganate. I don't know. I wouldn't call it a kingdom or an empire. It's a Kaganate. Um, but they um, they were they had this really so they're like basically what are they like Mongol or almost like a steppe people in Asia above the Caspian Sea, really far east. Um, and then kind of, you know, moved west by the Black Sea. And the leader, um, all his contemporaries were basically converted to Islam. And he invited a rabbi to his court and um, and an Arab, uh, you know, a Muslim teacher and and brought them in and a Christian a priest or or whatever and brought them in and decided that he would let them all debate and pick which religion based off of that and not, not based off of any other reason, but you know, he was, he was after the truth. And the interesting thing is, is that he picked Judaism 
And there is, in the history of Judaism, so there's this outlier. There is a steppe people. There's no Jewish state at this time. This is the 9th century. And there is no Jewish state, state except that suddenly there is. Because um, this, <laughs> this Kagan, this Khazar Kagan, um, converts to Judaism. And therefore, so do all his nobility. And the people start too. And... Uh, so suddenly there's this Jewish state in, in the middle of Asia or, you know, in, in Western Asia and Cyril Methodius, now that they have their experience, they're like, oh my goodness, we have to stop the spread of Judaism. Um, which I don't, I don't particularly think is the greatest thing in the whole world, but you know, they instantly rush up there and start arguing uh, theology with their count rabbis. Now they have count rabbis in the ninth century, which like, I never thought, I was like, history of Germany, Bohemian, I'm never going to be able to talk about that. I'm never going to get an excuse. But yes, Cyril and Methodius go there and debate this guy and try to stop the spread of Juda Judaism, uh, for better or worse, you know, and um, uh, and bring with them now, you know, anti-Muslim and anti-Jewish arguments that they've gotten from the caliphate in the Middle East. So this all this all kind of comes together. Now they're in the Crimean. Now they're they're already in that, you know, closer to the Slavs, let's say. And mm -hmm. and I should say that supposedly, uh I don't there's not a lot of sources here, but um Cyril may have learned the Khazar language in in the Crimea at this time. Um yeah. So anyways, cool cool stuff. Okay, so we've been kind of all around a little bit trying to give you a, a, an idea about who Cyril Methodius were and what their their uh, viewpoint was and exactly how they made all this stuff happen. But it all comes together pretty much right here at this point in the podcast that we want to make sure that you understand the certain dates where we start getting back into greater Moravia and their influence here. In 862, the brothers began to work with, with which what would become their historical importance and that year, Prince Radislav of Greater Moravia requested that the Emperor Michael III and the Patriarch Photius send missionaries to evangelize his Slavic subjects. His motives in doing so were probably more political than they were religious. Radislav had become king with the support of the Frankish ruler Louis the German, Louis the German but subsequently sought to assert his independence from the Franks. It is a common misconception that Cyril Methodius were the first to bring Christianity to Moravia, but the letter from Radislav to Michael III states clearly that Radislav's people had already rejected paganism and adherence to the Christian law. So I guess the bed was already made, so then they, it was easy to come on in and do that. Radislav mm -hmm. said that he had to expel the missionaries of the Roman Church and instead turn to Constantinople for ecclesiastical assistance and presumably a decree political support. Well, that kind of makes sense, though, Travis. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can kind of see that if you're not going to get something from one parent, go ask the other, right? So, I, yeah, um, for the history of Germany, over the years, um, uh, I've been asked a lot of times, Holy Roman Empire, right? We got Prussians, we got Bavarians, we got Teutonic Knights going off and creating a separate state next door. We got um, Baden-Württemberg, Palatinate, Saxons, Franks, all Germans, all Germans. We got Italians, okay? What? 
what the heck is up? And and these are all princes, principalities, um, bishops, bishop princes, okay? And we got one king. And, and then, of course, there's the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor himself. But then there's one king. Um, and that's the king, the king of Bohemia, this Slavic state in the empire who gets to keep his king crown. No one else does. Uh, later, there's a king of Germany, but then he just becomes the emperor, you know, um, or king of Prussia, but he just becomes the next emperor. So, um, yeah, there's no, uh, there's a king of Bavaria for a while. Um, but there's the, this whole time for a whole millennia plus, there is the kingdom of Bohemia with a king as, you know, the king title as an independent entity there. And well, eventually even that turns into a Habsburg and okay, never mind. But, <laughs> um, the, 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 the reason is people ask me, how did everything else got, um, Germanized, um, the Teutonic Knights went way up into Latvia and Germanized Eastern Prussia. Prussia was actually, Old Prussia is not a Germanic language. It is a Slavic language or a Baltic language, rather. And um, so, but, they, but they're definitely Middle Prussian and Modern Prussian is definitely German, period. Uh, and they went all the way to the, you know, they, they Germanized a large section of what's today Poland. And they Germanized um, all the border areas around Bohemia and so forth and so on. Um, and yet Bohemia itself stayed a majority Czech, which is Slavic. How did that happen? Why did that happen? The answer to the question, the root of that uh, answer is, is that Rostislav didn't go to daddy. He went to mommy. Like, as you put it, right? right. He said no to right. the Franks and he kicked the Roman Catholic um, Empire out. So the Saxons, as a good counterexample, were forced, converted by the Franks as a way to, and over Charlemagne's lifetime, over 30 years and on to his grandchildren, fought the Saxons and slowly converted them and slowly annexed their, their region into the Frankish realm. Um and well, the, yeah, not not to the, get too much in the right, timeline, well, though. Well, but but the Bohemians. My point is, my point is, sorry, my point is, the Bohemians were able to avoid that fate and become Franks, basically. Um, uh, just uh, you know, a bunch of everywhere else in the Holy Roman Empire uh, and France, the name lived on, but the count was an actual Frank. But Bohemia, the count was an actual Slavic Czech. Uh, so that, that's the point. That's really, really important for the history of Bohemia. That's what that's, it's really, really important to spend the time and emphasize that, uh, right here at the beginning of, of, you know, your earliest chronological show. Um, that is the answer to the question. Why was Bohemia able to remain a kingdom? And why was it able to remain Slavic? Even though it's, it, it did go Catholic after a while. How did it do that? The root is Rostislav. All right. That's it. He went to the he went to the Byzantines instead of the Franks, and Cyril Methodius came instead of some Latin missionary. Um, and I, th that's I it. think that's it right there. I think all this right here could have been probably a little bit different. Should could have Charlemagne had a had a better hold on his sons and an idea about how to separate his kingdom. Oh my uh, God! Now that's a can of worms. No, seriously. It, let me it, cut, it, no, let me cut you off it, there. Yeah. I spend a whole two hours talking about that on the history of Germany. <laughs> Just let me cut you off there. Let's get back to this because yeah, 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 yeah. But oh my goodness! If yeah, the I mean, Franks, it, it, their succession big... laws. Oh, yes. why, why, why? Complicated <laughs> and, and 
and horrible. Yeah. But that, that laid the groundwork for this because you could, before, you could, we, you could make the argument. Yeah. I wouldn't make the argument, but you could make the argument that Frank, Frankish succession law is the root of world war one and world war two. Seriously. <laughs> like, like you could write, you could write that book. <laughs> oh, you could. I yeah. mean, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, well, okay. So, <laughs> all right. So, so you, you mentioned this, there's some, so you know now we see the idea of of Radislav being the seat of power as a, a, a Slavic ruler ruling over this area and and uh, and and, be, and being king and and really pushing the right buttons to be able to get the help that he needed against the Franks to kind of keep that there and part of that is to set up a civil code a Slavic civil code that's going to unite people together in a way that you just can't do by by other decree and this was used uh of course in the greater greater moravia as well very important slavic uh civil code right and so there is yeah what you're saying is that there is a mix of kind of roman and byzantine influence here roman and you know catholic and orthodox influence and and we do have some evidence of that namely in the so-called prague fragments which is by a certain you know, written in old glagolitic liturgical, uh, it's a, it's old, just, just fragments, but it's brought from Jerusalem to Kiev and was discovered there by a man named Sares Nevsky, if I didn't just butcher that. And it's basically the oldest document in the Slavonic tongue, period. So that's the oldest, oldest extant Slavic thing we have, um, on the planet. And those those uh, in that fragments in those fragments we see that it closely adheres to a latin type um it's shown by the words for instance mass and preface so you know those are like from the latin liturgy and the name of one felicitas which is you know latin for happy but also a name <laughs> and um in any case like the circumstances were such that the brothers could hope for no permanent success okay w- with their mission with what they were doing without placating rome without also looking to rome so even though rastislav kicked out the roman missionaries Cyril Methodius did ask for papal approval, um, and they did, you know, use words, some Latin words in their liturgy. Um, so, so you know, as they went also, I would say they didn't, you know, it's different than their Bulgarian mission. It's different than, um, so there, there is already some different, some local differences, I would say. So now as we kind of have a, a grasp on, on what Greater Moravia was, and who made Greater Moravia Greater Moravia, and uh, the empire that that we are talking about at this moment. You have to kind of bring it down to the fact that it didn't last, and we know that obviously. Uh, and most of it was an internal strife that caused a lot of problems that kind of disintegrated the foundation of the empire. Greater Moravians didn't always get along internally, and that was seen through the history books. Uh, they also didn't get along with, very well with the Carolingian Empire. Uh, and around 896, the Hungarians arrived on the scene for the first time to give Greater Moravia its death blow. So, so if you ever go to Hungary, you'll 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 listen to people and you'll say, you know what? Gosh, that sounds a little bit like Finnish, right? It's it's you know if if you've been been to Finland, you're like, well, if, there's some if you even get that there. far. I mean, yeah, if you even make that connection, uh, <laughs> right? The main the thing is, part, you'll, if you're in Budapest, you'll be like, boy, these like I I've heard Slavic before, and these guys sound different. Like, what yes. the heck are they saying? <laughs> it's not Germanic. It's not Slavic. It's just their own thing. And yeah. 
Um, and they they enjoy that. If you if you talk to Hungarians, they can have a little side note, uh, you know, a side conversation, and no one will be any the wiser. And uh, that really was kind of when we put together this this Finnish Hungarian sort of uh, language set about the Hungarians. Um, it, it really really stood out by itself. It sounds like gibberish at the time, and it does a little bit today, uh, unless you have that ear for Hungarian. So Hungarians basically come out, not out of the mist like some of the, of, of the Germanic peoples, but they just come off the steps, you mm-hmm. know, and to come onto the scene uh, from the east. And by 896, they had conquered and started to settle in the Carpathian Mountains. And if you've ever been to Hungary, to Budapest, in the winter, when you know that wind is just, just bearing down on you, there ain't nothing stopping it from hitting your face. Uh, it is, um, they are steppe people. Uh, they are uh, tough people when it comes to the weather, and uh, you can definitely see that in their colonial uh, aspects when they started to colonize the Carpathian Mountains. That's not a place for weak people, <laughs> all right? Weakened by internal struggle and frequent wars by Carolingian Empire, the Greater Moravia was ultimately overrun by the Hungarians, who were ready for to take over, actually, and who conquered the Carpathian Basin around 896. Its remnants were divided between Poland, Hungary, Bohemia, and the Holy Roman Empire. Greater Moravia left behind a lasting legacy in Central and Eastern Europe. The Glagolitic script and its successor Cyrillic were disseminated to other Slavic countries, particularly the Balkans and the Kievan Rus, charting a new path in their cultural development. So you don't know that Cyrillic was, was thanks to the Czechs, really? Oh, well, you get that information today. Yeah, at least at least at least the Moravians, I guess. But yeah, it's, it's, it was a Rostislav that first invited them up that far north. Um, and he really, was, he's a and, mover. And he's a he, mover and, and shaker. Yeah, and okay. he was in fact the the you know the premise lids. The it was the under the Ottokar uh, that dynasty, and you know you've mentioned them before, sure. and um, and that's it's yeah. So actually, even though Czechs use the standard Latin alphabet, um, they it's actually they're they're in no you know small part is it thanks to them that they came up in the first place and russians have theirs and all slavs have theirs and you know from yugoslavia or i shouldn't say yugoslavia but south slavic countries um they some of them use cyrillic uh, like serbians use cyrillic uh, alphabet and bulgaria um part of romanian speakers the ones in moldova moldova speak romanian but had to learn the cyrillic alphabet during soviet union times so for well i don't know if that's a good thing but um yeah so yeah thanks to good old rastislav seriously like that's that's i'm glad we did this episode it's it's uh um it's Bohemians again were actually pretty influential, even though this empire, empire, you know, quote unquote, only lasted seventy years. So pretty, pretty neat but, stuff. But you know, if you talk to a modern day Moravian, they'll be quick to tell you how awesome that great empire was, even in a short period of time. Uh, it's more of a tongue in cheek, though. Don't, don't you feel that, Travis? When you were living here, and I'm, I'm living here now, you, you're going to run into Moravians, um, uh, and they're kind of like a, a nice little club. You know, um, they they say, well, things are just, you know, wine's much better in Moravia. Um, you know, the, they're, they're the, a, the girls are prettier in Moravia. You they're know? A proud folk. They're a proud <laughs> they, folk. They are proud folk. But you know what? The, the, the history we're talking about tonight still runs deep in that part of the Czech Republic and the people that call themselves Czech today when they're really, in a sense, Moravians. They take a great deal of pride in the history that of 
Indo-Moravian Empire. Yeah, as do Slovaks. Absolutely. Let me talk real quick about the sources, because honestly, so much of this was, was romanticized. You know, what do we actually know about the ninth century? Um, and, you know, when when the Czechs and Slovaks were really just first discovering written language and, and using it for the first time. And the fact is, we don't know a whole lot. We don't know a whole lot about Rostislav and um, even Otokar. And um, we start getting into the 10th century and there's there's still you know sporadic references to Great Moravia for later years, um, in you know chroniclers and like Frankish chroniclers might might reference the area as Greater Moravia and that kind of thing. And there are we have references like extant coffees. There's documents in Salzburg today, for instance. You can go look at where they mention Moimir, the founder, and Svatopluk the first, Svatopluk the Great in in Slavic often, um, and that's like early already that's 925 931 is when they're dated and that's about as far back as you can go but if you recall that's already a century after moimir lived so that's that's really that's it's that's as far back as we can go for those guys and we just have fragments um we do get after in the 10th century itself uh, Czechs aren't gone. Moravians aren't gone. The nobility is still around. The royal family isn't all slaughtered. Like I said, it eventually becomes the kingdom of Bohemia. And so this noble family did eventually kind of keep the name Moravia alive. And we do get the birth of the modern, now Frankish, March of Moravia. And the Franks did this every place they conquered. They would take over, but they kept the name and gave it as a title to a Frankish person. So now the Duke, basically the Marquis of uh, Moravia would be a Frank, but the name stays alive. Well, the Habsburgs um, did that quite a bit, Travis. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, they would yep. say, you know, they were the, the king or queen of Bohemia, but also the ruler of the Habsburg dynasty. So, and yeah. you, you know, I was called, uh, you know, you know, you know what a march is, I assume. But um, uh, March, you know why it was March of Moravia is because no. March is always a marquee is someone that is expected to fight. So a marquee is not a lazy nobleman. He's a nobleman with a sword. And March specifically means border area. So a marquee is somebody in this case. The Hungarians are right next door, buddy. So good luck with your fiefdom. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's why. So he's a marquis. Um, well, like in, a ma marquis in, de Lafayette. Exactly. In Germany, you know, the French there's, version. there's a yeah. graf, uh, a graf, which is a, oh boy, it's a duke or a count. Um, count, I believe, because uh, duke is Herzog. So, but a markgraf is a mark. Count okay, and that and that's and that means that oh, yeah, all right. So, um, March of Austria, by the way, it, Austria started as a march. Um, so in English and English French, you know, we get our titles from the Normans, so we would see like that we would say the Marquis of Austria, the Marquis of Moravia. Um, so that's that's you know, if you're curious, it's because the Hungarians were right next door. So, yeah, good luck with your fiefdom. Here you go. Here's your plot of land. Start building castles because you're going to need them. You know, that that kind of thing. So now eventually the um, Hungarians were kind of pacified. They they went all the way. I mean, they they marched through Spain. They marched through. I mean, they just went through Europe and just slaughtering and killing and plundering as they went. However, eventually they were put to a stop. There's a famous battle in Bavaria and Augsburg, which I talk about on a different show. And uh, there's the Battle of Lechfeld specifically. 
And eventually uh, a march was no longer needed, basically, in the whole Roman Empire. And it did it it passed ha- uh, passed hands. It went from a uh, Bohemian duke to a Polish duke to a uh, you know it was returned to Bohemia but a different family. Um, and you know, long story short, we start to actually see uh, birth of Bohemia as we as we know it today as a uh, medieval fiefdom, uh, let's say, um, which is you know where we get the modern uh, history from. And also uh, Moravia, and also Silesia, and also Slovakia. So we now also kind of get the modern um, birth of the modern sense of Slovakia, because we're no longer talking of, you know, greater Moravia as the ancestors of the Slovaks, but we're talking about Slovaks themselves. And basically, um, you just, slowly, you've, just like, you've just said the, the shield emblem of Czech Republic, you know, of all the, you know, if you ever look at the shield... I'm checking. Like you got right. the Bohemian two-tailed lion, you got the Silesian eagle, you've got the, you know, it, it, you, you got all these different, you know, these kingdoms coming together into into one sort of entity, and you're going to see that uh, come more into its own later in in uh, the Middle Ages when you have King Charles the Fourth, the son of John of Luxembourg, and you'll see that come together uh, and and give some level of importance. We're not at that point yet. We're talking about the Greater Moravia, but that's down down the road. When you're talking, like it's, you're saying, Travis, right now, that there's a sense of well, who, what is Bohemia? It's now coming more into focus. Okay, so we talk about the divorce, and we talk, you know, after the Velvet Revolution, we have still the countries come still hanging on by uh, as as one Czechoslovakia, so to speak. But yet, you can tell that it's, that's not going to work because Slovakia is its own entity, its own history. Its own culture, its own take on the language, and the Czech, the Czechs have another take on that as well. So the divorce post nineteen ninety three, an amicable one at that, um, still kind of separates the two. And, um, and if you ever come here to the Czech Republic, you'll see that there are differences. Um, you'll be able to maybe pick out a little bit of the language differences or the pronunciation from from a Slovak versus a Czech, but it's very very slight, and that's from a foreigner's viewpoint. Maybe from a from a national here, that would be different. But we get a lot of a lot of mail email from people saying, "Hey, can you guys talk a little bit about what goes on with Slovakia?" You know, and sometimes we talk about certain things in in history that have those connections. But we thought we'd give a little idea because this is a perfect time to talk about. The birth of Slovakia following uh, our concept of Greater Moravia. As for the eastern part of Great Moravia, the core territory, of course, which is present-day Slovakia, it fell under the domination of the Hungarian Arpad dynasty. The northwest borders of the Principality of Hungary became the mostly uninhabited or sparsely inhabited land. Okay. And it's just considered a march that Okay. A march like in the sense of a border country. So uh, dangerous because it's close to the enemy. Um, you know, what I just said about marches. Um, okay. So, yeah, right, so, it's sparsely yeah. inhabited. The Hungarians made a march out of it, like, you know, put a marquee in charge, and uh, which basically lasted until the 13th century. The rest remained under the rule of the local Slavic aristocracy and was gradually integrated into the Kingdom of Hungary in a process finished by the 14th century. In the year 1000, or 1001 to be exact, all of present-day Slovakia was taken over by Poland under Boleslav I, and much of the territory became part of the Kingdom of Hungary by 1031. 
Since the 10th century, the population of Slovakia had been evolving into the present day Slovaks as we know. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of tells you a little bit of some of the animosity that yeah. you have between the Hungarians and, and the Slovaks. Right. And I just I do want to point out that if you are a fan of Slovak history, we do bring that up all the time. <laughs> the, you know, crown of St. Stephen and all the the Hungarian um uh, background, which was at that time the Slovakian history, and that's why we do it because we want to. We do want to cover Czechoslovak history uh, as well as we can. But I know that our focus, like we have never, we never talked about the Tatra Mountains or you know some of the, or even like Bratislava that kind of thing. But um, uh, we will, we will. Um, but we do talk about things like uh, Countess Bathory, who now you know why she That's was remember. actually if you if you talk to a Slovak, they're like, hey, 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 she was not Slovak. She was Hungarian because, of course, she was. She was nobility. All the nobility was Hungarians. And um, if if you ask yourself, how did Countess Bathory? Every, I think everybody's aware of the tale. We don't need to go over it again. We've done an episode on it in one of the Halloween episodes or or whatever. Um, but if you ask yourself, how could Countess Bathory uh, bathe in blood and get away with it for so long, like for years, and neighbors would hear the screaming and uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera? The answer She's is well simple. Connected. This, yeah. Well, the answer is simple. Those neighbors were freaking <laughs> Slovak. And they didn't dare speak up against a Hungarian noblewoman, um, even if their if their peasant girls were going missing. And they, I mean, they weren't going missing. They knew exactly when they where they went. Um, but that that's that was life. Slovaks were oppressed to the nth degree. You know, Bathory ended up getting hers not because of murder, but because she murdered the, um, like the illegitimate son of a cleric or a or another. Um, I believe that's what it was. It was something to do with the church. Uh, you know, killed the wrong person. And otherwise, you know, if she would have stuck to Slovak girls, she could have done that. She could have lived to be a ripe old age. It's unbelievable. Um, that's, that's, I'm not just saying that because that's a crazy, uh, grim story to send you guys off to, to sleep with tonight. Uh, but, but no, that is indicative of the conditions of what the Slovaks had to deal with for centuries and centuries and centuries, all the way, um, and you know, to a lesser degree, but still all the way until really World War One. They were under other powers after the 10th century. So, yeah. A millennium under the Hungarians. Imagine that. Yeah, I, well, <laughs> I think a lot have imagined that and said no, thank you. <laughs> as far as as far as reliving any of that, but and, I, I, and to to our Hungarian listeners, I would like to say I love Budapest, one of my favorite cities in the whole world. <laughs> I can't wait to go back there and try some of the fine white wine from the countryside. And oh boy, do I miss Hungary. <laughs> yeah. um, have a nice well, evening and thank you for listening. <laughs> it's been fun. You know, it, it is it is interesting as a foreigner because, you know, as Americans, Travis, we have our own hangups. God knows we do with each other, you know, um, between the north and the south and what's a Midwestern, what's, what's a Californian, what's a Pacific North, Northwestern person. Uh, you know, we all have our, our issues, even though it's in a very short period of time. Uh, you know, on on a historical level, but as a foreigner coming in and coming in and listening to the differences between a Czech, a Moravian, a Slovak, a Hungarian, uh, it gets a little confusing. And I don't know if we shed some light on that tonight, as far as to make it less confusing. <laughs> but at least you know well, well, all the players. There's, there's an that are episode. Playing. There's an episode <laughs> for the World War One series. Um, oh, by the way, yeah, World War One series. If you guys, because we're in the centennial, if you guys want to hear more about what's going on. Um, the Czechs role, go listen to that. Um, 
But yeah, if you want to give some insight into the confusion, uh, you get an idea if you just listen to the, you know, get a glimpse of the Austro-Hungarian army. And as part of the World War One series, we talk about that basically every episode, just how confusing it was to be a Czech in the Austro-Hungarian army. Um, but if you go, if you know of the uh, book, the gold, the good soldier Schweik, it takes place right at the beginning of the war, and it gives you a great day-to-day kind of example of being a Czech with uh, Austrian um, commanders, Austrian officers, and then, you know, fellow Hungarian. He He's basically able to respond in all those languages, and it's just part of everyday life, and yet um, it's a hilarious book, and a lot of the, um, a lot of the comedy comes across translated because it's just so you know it's just they're making fun of of like the, just the ridiculousness of having to say everything in four languages and and you know different being arrested you better speak german or you you might want to speak hungarian uh, you know but going to court you want to speak german and and it's just like oh wow like it's just it's yeah it's really complicated day-to-day life um as kafka would let you know um, yeah, it, it yeah. adds to the complexity of, of I, I think, society. I think one of the, the takeaways from this show, though, tonight, Travis, is to give our listeners a better idea of what Greater Moravia was in the sense that when you when you fly to Czech Republic, you think, well, what, what's Moravia again? Well, now you know. You have a better idea that this was a, a significant, for at least Central Europe, empire for a short period of time that, that really uh, – set the table for so many different nationalities and, and peoples and cultures to take bits and parts of, of, of their successes and failures. And I think that the main things as far as the people that made Greater Moravia, Greater Moravia, Cyril Methodius are, are a great takeaway, as well as Radislav I. You have those, those two movers and shakers of those three gentlemen. Um, I think you can get a really good idea about the beginnings of Greater Moravia uh, and its heyday which I think is a, a neat thing to take away from this show tonight. Okay. So um, so as we wrap up our show, we want to make sure that you understand that we've got so many things going on for the Bohemian Podcast as well as the history of Germany. Uh, if you get a chance to go to podcastnick.com, you'll be able to see all our, our workings that we're doing. You can go to our YouTube channel to see more of a visual account of what we do with the Bohemian Podcast uh, and the Agora Network with our audio podcast. We're part of that uh, wonderful group of people. I think that uh, you're going to get a lot of great stuff from us this year in 2016 going forward um, that uh, you're just going to get just a, a full plate of, of of things that are connected to the history of Germany, the history of, of, Bo- of Bohemia. Uh, you're going to have some great stuff on the secret cabinet that is coming out that Travis does. Um, the list goes on and on. Something, so, else, something else you're going to do right now. You don't know this yet, dear listener, but you are going to, when the show is over, you're going to go over to YouTube. Yes. And you're going to search there, the Bohemian YouTube channel. Yes, you are. Oh, my goodness. You're welcome. Because just released literally like at 4 a.m. last night, uh, Pete uh, put together finally, uh, it's like, what, eight months months in the making. Yeah. Finally got it all edited with, I mean, it's it's documentary quality. This is a fantastic video. Um, Pete, to get to put together, it's just like 11 minutes something, pretty short. It's not, you know, too long. But we went to Pilsen for the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Pilsen by U.S. troops. And I took my grandfather's uniform out of my closet for the first of and only time probably in my lifetime and put it on. 
and we made our way down to Pilsen for this event, and we spoke to veterans, we spoke to reenactors, we saw lots of guns and tanks and airplanes, and oh my god, it was so cool. And also, <laughs> um, and we we interviewed people. We interviewed the granddaughter of General Patton. We got her on on film. We got her. That's in that video that I'm talking about, which is uh, now you're getting the picture of why you are in fact going to go to YouTube and type in Bohemian. YouTube channel or Bohemian, um, I believe 70th anniversary Pilsen will get you there. Um, uh, just typing in Bohemian will get you there, but that you need to do that. I, I believe there's also a link on uh, to it on Bohemian.com. Um, there's definitely a link there on yep. podcastnick.com. Um, let's yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you guys, you get it's that's awesome. That is as far as videos, that is just like amazingly done. Pete, props, hats off. That is Thanks, awesome. Man. You guys it was a lot gonna, of fun to do. I'm glad we got it done. And I, and, uh, and I know, and I say that awesome. because I know how much work that was. That was that took forever to put together, and it's just like with he he got some stock footage from the 40s, um, cut it all in expertly. Uh, you know, and it's just it's a great it's a great 11 minute video, um. So if you enjoy this podcast, I, you know, if you want to, hey, if you want to see what we look like, um, or if you, want see, if you want to see what my grandfather is. <laughs> Do you want to? <laughs> no one does. They don't, they don't, you don't know this either yet, dear listeners, but there's a reason we're podcasters. Um, <laughs> but if you want to see my grandfather's uniform, because it's the only time it's, I'm ever going to wear it. So, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, we had a lot of fun. It was just eye opening. It was enlightening. We, we went to the museums there. They have a great exhibit on Patton and, um, we have, you know, pictures from all that are on, on bohemican.com and there's, you know, a further blog posts and, and et cetera wrapped around those, uh, that, those videos on bohemican.com. So if you just go to YouTube, you might miss uh, part of the picture, but I want to emphasize the video. You, you, you definitely want to see that. Um, Pete put his life and soul into that for, uh, <laughs> for hours and hours on end. So um, please do let that pay off uh, and, and go watch that video. Um, otherwise I, I think we've, we've said it all. The Agora podcast, um, podcast of the month is our good friend, Stephen Guerra and his podcast A to Z history presents, uh, the history of the papacy podcast, um, which he's been a guest on the shows before he's, you know, we, we've recommended him before. If you want to know more about the papacy, he's our featured podcast of the month, uh, of the month for the Agora podcast network. And boy, I mean, there's nothing else we can really plug here. Uh, <laughs> I think we just you know, go to our, sh- our shop. <laughs> yeah, we've come. Uh, well, yeah, someone someone actually bought. Yeah, someone actually bought um, less of a plug, more of a thank you to whoever whoever's running around in Bohemian T-shirts right now. You rock. Like, I I don't know. A Bohemian awesome. itself, I think it's um, maybe one person just bought like five of them. Maybe it's one guy. That guy, you're awesome. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's like five people or something. I, we, I, I made them because I wanted one myself and uh, to, or, to order Pete a couple. But it turns out someone actually bought a couple, um, which is awesome. You know, we get a couple of dollars royalty, basically, uh, every time you buy a T-shirt. And that um, the profit margin's the biggest, let me put it that way. So that really helps the show as far as buying books and, and all that stuff. So um, yeah, like... Thank you so much for doing that. Whoever did that, uh, those five people that are running around, running around in Bohemian t-shirts. Um, awesome. That is like, that exceeds expectations. So fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been, it's already been a very busy 2016 Trav. And I think, uh, you know, we, we've got a lot more to go here, but as for tonight, I think we can wrap it up 
And for my buddy Travis Dow, I'm Pete Coleman saying have a good evening from Prague. You have been listening to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dow. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas, and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemian Podcast, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.